season seven. That's it. Another season is wrapped. I'm your host, Rohati, coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Leave a rating somewhere. Lift up this podcast. I'm glad you're here. Episode 51, featuring pastor, author, Johnny Rashid. This is a in-depth conversation. Johnny is a writer and a pastor. We both have written for the same publisher in Herald Press. My book, When We Belong, came out about a month after his book, Jesus Picks a Side. Although we only spend about half of our conversation around the book, and not even specifically the book, we talk about the important topics that Johnny has included in a much-needed book. I know right off the hop that some of the top best-selling books are ones that teach Christians to just sit on the fence. And I think I mentioned it, sitting your ass on the fence gets you nowhere. In fact, it preserves status quo and harms those on the margins. Jesus' followers do something very different, and so learn more in this episode. The first half talks about the experience of brown bodies. So the brown experience, that is vast and wide, but Johnny and I share something in common in our complexion. So his experience as an Arab American with roots from Egypt, but he was born in the United States, that plays into his faith formation and what it means to become conscious of the lived experience within systemic oppression. We then switch gears into liberation. We talk about leadership in the church, what it means to lead change in the church, congregations seeking justice yet inevitably pushed back. Talk about what it means to center those on the margins, to find affirming voices so you don't run out of steam. This episode is just packed full of God's faithfulness and how God works to encounter those on the margins. Once again, we talk about paying attention to your body. We talk about what it means to take political stands as Christians and not to just merely side with the oppressor, but to stand up on the side where Jesus stands. Enough with this faux diversity. Enough with bipartisanship. We're here to pick up with Jesus. Not the sanitized version, but the one who liberates. Let's roll. so much for having me on the show. I'm Johnny. I use he, him pronouns, Johnny Rashid. I'm so glad to be here. Johnny, you have published a book. Um, I think it is a fantastic book. And one of the reasons I think it's (laughs) fantastic, I'm just this massive fan of any person of color, minister of color, who goes against the obvious grain. And when I look at the the categories for my own book on Amazon or wherever. The one book that is always at the dang top, man, is this, uh, it's an Andy Stanley book, I think. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, he is selling his book oh, very oh, well. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Not, it's called Not, Not in, in It, it to Win It. Why it. Choosing Sides, Sidelines, the Church. Don't buy that book. 
I don't think that's particularly helpful, but it, it is an apt representation, its popularity of where contemporary Christianity is at when it comes to engaging into the political sphere, but just just the neighborhood and the city. It reflects what the heck was totally, going on. Totally. So we're going to talk about your book, which people should be buying instead, because yours should be at the top of the Amazon rankings, not Andy Stanley. Yeah, totally. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I don't think I'll beat Andy, but check out my book, y'all. If you think it's <laughs> no, no, we're going to talk about why it's interesting. I don't even know who Andy Stanley is. You know, I've heard about him. Does he have a TV show? Don't know. Don't care. Johnny, do you have a TV show? No, I don't. I have a podcast, and I have a uh, Instagram devoted to the food I cook. That's it. Oh, you have a Twitter, though, too. Give yourself some credit. Too much. I'm too much on Twitter, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're just right. You don't want to be <laughs> You don't want to be lukewarm. Didn't someone write about that? <laughs> Those lukewarm That's right. Folks? That's right. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I want to tease the listeners with aspects of your book because it wraps around your story. Jesus takes a side, embracing the political demands of the gospel. You start your book out uh, with your story. Before we launch into that, I would like to invite you to situate yourself for the listeners uh, and reflect and, and share with us what where you were situated, land-wise, the traditional lands you were on, and uh, the city you call home now. I am on traditional Lene Lenape lands in what is now known as Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States. I've been to Philly once. Oh, yeah. Best city in the world, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, how long have you been in Philly? Almost 15 years, 15 years, I think, to maybe even longer, um, 16 to 17 years, actually. So draw us into a brief story of coming to America. Well, I mean, I wasn't born in, I was born in the United States, mm -hmm. but my parents immigrated from Egypt to the U.S. And I talk a lot about our, the politics of our body, the politics of our um, lived experience, embodied politics. And my parents immigrated from a predominantly Muslim country. Egypt's like 90% Muslim, 10% Coptic, just a little bit um, evangelical or Protestant. And they immigrated to the U.S. and found solidarity with other Christians. As And, and they, they were no longer part of the religious minority. They were part of the re religious majority. And that because they were looking for a Christian nation, they allied with what they thought was the party of faith, mm. of their faith, which opposed um, is Muslim regimes, Muslim countries, which were their common enemy. Um, and so they, they became rather politically conservative, right? Mm -hmm. That would be mm -hmm. common, I think, in many ways for children of immigrants. Um, but for me, my lived experience was formed by the fact, my political lived experience was formed by the fact that I was an ethnic minority. So I wasn't, I didn't grow up as a religious minority. I grew up as an ethnic minority in the US. And so when it came to things like 9-11, the war on terror, my politics was formed because of how Middle Easterners, how Arabs were treated. Mm -hmm. um, and that formed my politics. And so my father and I specifically, when it came to um, 
our politics disagreed right in that moment because he supported wars against mm-hmm. Muslim countries because he felt oppressed by them. Mm-hmm. Whereas I felt oppressed by uh, the military and the xenophobia and the hysteria around Arabs in the U.S. during 9-11 and during the war on terror. It, it, that's a powerful juxtaposition that I don't think, well, certainly not uh, white folks or contemporary culture appreciates how first gen, second gen can collide in their understandings and the ways totally. that they see the world. Um, I'm reading a, a book right now. It's a couple of years old, uh, written by a Canadian jur- journalist named Kamal Al-Soleili. Uh, and he wrote Brown what being brown in the world today means to everyone. Curiously, brown in Canada usually means uh, South Asian, Southeast Asian, because we have, we have such a, a small Latin population here that, that if you're brown, that's the reference, whereas it's very different in the U.S. However, in his book, he, he is lumping in the middle brown experience uh, you are not afforded the privileges of whiteness, and you also are not uh, subjected to all of the force of anti-blackness. You're in a weird middle. Describe or share a st- uh, the story of how, and you started to allude to how your your ethnicity, and I would assume then as well your brownness, your your complexion, your skin color was an aspect that othered you especially in communities, church communities, uh, that you thought could be safe. Was there ever like an alert moment where you're like, wait a minute, 9-11 was, was one. What, what was the formative experience for you? Well, not, I mean, definitely 9-11. You know, I grew up, I mean, oh boy. I mean, I grew up with a racialized experience that I didn't even understand. Why was I ashamed that my mother spoke with an accent? Why was I ashamed mm. that we had PB and J and pita bread and not in wonder bread? Why was I ashamed of my heritage? Did everybody feel like this was just us normal? Why was I trying to assimilate to whiteness? Um, why was I uh, just, mm-hmm. just what, what was happening? To, I didn't understand that I was experiencing genuine racism when I was younger. Yeah. Um, 9-11 brought some of that to consciousness, um, but so did just my experience as a Christian, you know. Uh, my convictions, what's interesting to me in my life is that my convictions have often, my intellectual convictions have often preceded my emo- the, the lived experience expressed in my emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was opposed to the war on Iraq, not knowing that, strictly speaking, I was opposed to it because they were bombing Arabs. Mm-hmm. And later on, I realized, oh, the reason that you were so hos- uh, against it yeah, was yeah. because it was personal. Yeah. You know, yeah. as we moved our church to becoming LGBT affirming and I spearheaded that effort, I learned, oh, you're, you care about this issue because you're a, a sexual minority, because mm-hmm. you're queer. And I learned that about myself. So I, I discovered the microaggressions and the oppression that I felt after I developed convictions against them. So really fascinating for me to observe that. And this is true of my life in general, that my thoughts are often ahead of my feelings. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so I think faster than I feel in many ways. Mm. Um, mm. And so as I learned about racism in the world, as I learned about my experience as a brown person, as a racial minority, I began to look back at my life and see the moments of oppression that I faced. 
as a child, in adolescence, as a teenager, in college, and then even eventually in the very church that I pastored, I learned that here was where the racism was. So that was really formative for me um, and helped me understand it, you know? I really appreciate you sharing, you used the word consciousness, because I think Mm. the Brown experience, and you're reflecting very much my own as well, Um, I remember uh, sharing and speaking with a number of black friends and for many of them uh, being alert to uh, their blackness and how that stands in opposition to whiteness is something that is ingrained. It's almost in the blood that you are alert and aware from birth of how you're being racialized. Whereas those who are in the middle, brown bodies, Asian bodies, there isn't a, a a consciousness that you have to walk through. Like you're not necessarily alert to the ways you are subjugated. Mm, totally, it takes a long time to become aware of it. And vulnerability, you know, I know a lot of people of color that don't want to confront mm-hmm. the racism oh, they yeah. felt. They don't want to confront mm-hmm. the challenges there for sure. It's it, and I'm, I don't blame them. It's hard to do it. Do you continue then to navigate that juxtaposition in your own family of um, more conservative political leanings and then more, we'll just put it on the spectrum, more more liberal or left leaning? Most of my, I mean, my family is very conservative and they're not conscious of the racism that they face. I see it, they don't see it. Mm. A lot of my cousins want to keep themselves from it. But of course, there's a few black sheep that don't exactly fit in. Mm. And we have our own little cohort, but... To be honest with you, in general, among evangelical Egyptians, evangelical Syrians, yeah, it's largely conservative still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of that is just rooted in the hostility towards Muslims. I just want to name that. Mm-hmm. But there's also just things such as um, homophobia, things yeah. such as um, sexism that inform our general demeanor, you know. Um, and of course, they're going to talk about things like abortion. They're going to say, oh, yeah, we care about justice. We care about keeping people alive. We care about um, fighting the forces of death, which is what I think informs our anti-oppression politics. But they'll say, yeah, that's why we advocate against abortion. But when you look at the other policies and the other ideas that are paired with abortion Mm -hmm. politics in the U.S., you begin to understand that this is not about health care. It's not about keeping people alive. It's not about anything. It's, it's, it's really just a carrot. And then even then it brings tremendous harm. It, its roots for, for that issue are, are rooted around the continuation of, of preserving power and privilege, malformed power, power and privilege, but it, Absolutely. its roots are in, in white supremacy. Uh, I want to stick with this conversation around, let's just talk to us, right? Let's talk to brown folks here um, and maybe even brown leaders. Because one of the aspects that I struggle with as, as a minister, in fact, is the, the mechanisms that I pastor well with other BIPOC folks who are working against collective liberation for BIPOC people. Like some of the some of the folks who push back the most on my stuff uh, of anti-racism or anti-racist society or justice, right, are BIPOC people. 
what is your approach? Like, how, how is your approach or, or how are you informed uh, when you navigate such waters? Well, I think that I just need to keep expanding my circles. I think there is a lot of reason for white supremacy to order people of color to actually say that what the forces that are seek to subvert white supremacy are actually bad. And so it's really great if the enemy can make um, would be opposition into allies. Mm -hmm. So I'm an Anabaptist. And so I think that's exactly what Constantine did to Christians. Hmm. Christians opposed the empire and then Constantine yes. came around and all of a sudden we yeah. became agents of the empire. Uh, we fought in Constantine's wars. And so if the new empire, empire, which is ordered by whiteness, which is ordered by patriarchy, which is ordered by neoliberalism, violence mm -hmm. can then subvert its opposition, then we're golden. You know, um, that, 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 that the greatest, um, the greatest ally of oppressors are the oppressed they can be the oppressed that are in their ranks right yeah it's, and then in what manner do you navigate relationally bringing it closer to home uh folks who are in your spheres uh who are embodying those qualities in many ways i have to not directly confront them i know that they are they're tokenized as like like, like they're tokenized as the person, the people of color that don't actually, the people of color that, hey, this isn't representing all people of color. Mm. Look at this person that I talked to. You know, yeah. that's the argument. That's yeah, yeah. the idea. You always find and that. So, one. <laughs> yeah, you, you, and they and they get tokenized for that reason. Mm. They are the, uh, um, they are the uh, Ben Carsons, so to speak. You know, but, um, they are the uh, um, individuals that appear to be the, the people of color that oppose anti-racism. You know, there's a saying I like to use. Um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit probably too cheeky, but I'll say it. Yeah, yeah, um, bring it. Skin folk ain't always kin folk. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, and so some people sometimes appear to play the part, but they don't actually, and there's many problems that come with that. And so um, many, many problems that come with uh, just, leaning too hard on the fact that somebody is a person of color as opposed to wondering if they're in an, if they're in a liberation movement, if they're in an anti-oppression movement, you know, we're looking for allies who are moved by the spirit to oppose racism, not just people of color in general, you know, mm. discipleship is more complicated than just kind of the color of your skin. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, that's the point of view that I, that I try to hold as best as I can. This is the quote. Can I, can I say the quote that I was looking for? It's from Simone de, de Bouvier. The oppressor would not be so strong if he did not have accomplices among the oppressed. The oppressor would not be so strong if he did not have accomplices among the oppressed. Mm. Mm. And so that's something we have to be conscious of, for sure. There's, there's almost um, a level of missing each other when it comes to conversation or, or around topics of anti-racism in that the embodiment of those of, of BIPOC folks who are um, acting in these movements, more conservative or even white supremacist movements, um, is one of, ironically, colorblindness. Uh, there's a sense of progression, uh, ironically, 
that if we want to move forward into whatever that liberation looks like, usually that is painted through a lens of capitalism. Uh, that's liberation when everyone can get a, a bigger slice of the money pie. Um, but it, it embodies these attributes and qualities of erasing your identity. Totally, totally. You had alluded to before that part of your awareness and consciousness then you is uniquely informed by your experience as a minister. So I wonder if we can take a step back and yeah, let's do it. just draw a quick story here of what it looked like for your journey into ministry. I'll go back to, I joined Circle of Hope right during the war on terror when I was looking for Christians who were opposed to the war in Iraq, opposed to the war on terror. Mm-hmm. And, I found, and I found some. I didn't know I could. I didn't know they existed. But here enough, there they were. I walked into the room, and on the side of a computer monitor, there was a big bumper sticker that said, War in Iraq, no. And that felt good to me. I was like, yeah, I can get down with these people. And so I joined this peace-minded, justice-oriented group that helped me regain my faith. And I became a leader among us, and I was called into being an apprentice pastor. And I was called into doing so at a very young age. I was 23 years old. To be honest, I wish I had more education. I had more self-awareness. I had more connection to who I was because at that very impressionable age, I was yeah. very easy to, to um, the word I'm going to say, I want to be careful with, but it seems to fit the part. I was, it was easy for me to be groomed. And so mm. I, was, I became a son of the organization trying to spread its DNA as far as it could go. go. I, I was down. It's helped me. I cared about it. And then over time, I realized, let me keep listening to these people of color, these sexual minorities to see if our, because I keep hearing from them and I would just wonder, is our organization harming them? And it took a long time for me to develop my own, to develop my own sense as a pastor. At first, you'd listen to protesters, dissenters in the church, and you'd try to quiet them down. Mm. And then I went to seminary. I, I developed a relationship with many other Christians across the country. And I learned, oh, the way Circle of Hope doesn't isn't just the way. Mm-hmm. And so I learned to ask questions about what we do, listen to racialized minorities, sexual minorities, and change the church. I became my own, my, 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 I, I developed my own philosophy of ministry mm-hmm. um, as an individual as I got these influences. And so I love the idea of joining ministry at a young age. I would recommend that people find mentors that will help them become the kind of pastors that they need to be and not the pastors that a a narcissistic leader wants them to be. Mm -hmm. So be careful with that. And that kind of thing exists in both conservative and progressive spaces for sure. I want to transition then. Well, let me ask you this question. Yeah. As you became more alert to the, the voices on the margins, at what point did you start to speak that truth within your context and describe then, because I, I, I would assume at some point as you became, as you started to share those voices that the pushback started to come. Absolutely. At first we were talking in circle about being anti-racist and it was an outward expression. It was important for us to push against racism in the world. And for the most part that was received well, but when you start seeing patterns of white supremacy in the world and then you see them mm-hmm. 
in your own family, mm-hmm. in your own church, mm-hmm. and you start asking questions. Well, a prophet is never loved in his hometown. That's mm-hmm. what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. And boy, is it true. Boy, is it true. <laughs> Amen. Amen. You know, the violent, the, the gaslighting, the abuse mm-hmm. that I experienced mm-hmm. in doing so was really tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, I'm working through it, and God is good, and we're moving through to what is next. And that feels good to me. But that's where we are for sure. That's that's how I experienced it. You know, um, it's very hard to resist a very tight knit family. Our community is super tight, super close, super connected. But start asking questions, and you'll you can quickly be ostracized. So that's something we're learning about. I feel like we compressed a, a long time frame into a, a one short paragraph of your experience of bringing in uh, or it, simply expressing your experience within your community context and running up against the wall. And like it, that sound, the way you just shared the story, it makes it sound like that is a recent or short activity, but that that can't be. It sounds like this has been going on for a long time. How do you not run out of gas? The best thing to do for me is to listen, is to ally with other people of color, other sexual minorities too for me mm. that are not, that, that, that have the same lived experience. That keeps you in your brain. Mm. It keeps you in your heart, keeps you in your body so you're not gaslit, so you don't second yeah, guess yeah. yourself. Affirmation. Yeah. And it gives you energy. It gives you capacity. Mm. It gives you hope. Yeah. When we face despair as Christians, I really do believe we have to remember God's faithfulness. So even on a day like today, when Roe v. Wade is undone, let us remember when it, when it was put into action. Mm-hmm. Let us remember suffrage. Let us remember the civil rights era. Mm-hmm. Let us remember abolition. Let us remember um, mm-hmm. the exodus mm-hmm. of the Israelites. Remember God, God's faithfulness today so that in the moment of despair, we don't succumb. Mm. So for me, it's about staying in community and staying connected to the history and the tradition. You know, add, add to that, you know, with the way that we remember is through worship. We remember through prayer, partake in communion, remember God's faithfulness, remember the salvation of Jesus, right? For me, that, that, that keeps me from being exhausted. But listen, I have enough dignity not to be trampled on. And so it is important for me to know when enough is enough mm. to know I've given this community my all and yeah. it's time for me to go. Yeah. You can faithfully leave, yeah. leave well from organizations that don't feel like they're changing and moving and growing in the direction that is good for you and find other places. You're never stuck. How do you know when it's that time? And I asked that question because when you're in predominantly white organization as a BIPOC leader or a BIPOC person, uh, especially if you're one of the token minorities. I'm not saying that's that's uh, your situation, but you can stick around waiting for change and give up your body until there's nothing left and that community and space will pull and pull and keep taking. The How do you couple, know? Yes. Well, I start, when, when staying in is more painful than leaving. Mm-hmm. When... And pay attention to your body. Yeah. Pay attention to the pain. You have to. So when it's more painful to stay than leave is a nice statement. But yeah. what does it mean? Yeah. You have to pay attention to the pain you've experienced. Mm. You have to be conscious of the hurt. Yes. I the don't trauma. feel it until my body screams back at me. Mm-hmm. Like I don't feel it until my blood pressure is up. Yeah. I don't feel it until my tension. It, there's tension in my back. 
till my stomach hurts, <laughs> till my body is achy, till yes, and there's a delay. I'm, I'm exhausted in the middle of the day. Like what is happening with me? Uh, it's best not to wait for that moment, but sometimes that's just what it is. But mm. pay attention to what your friends are saying. You know, I have a lot of friends right now that are telling me, take a break, mm -hmm. take a rest, mm -hmm. get away from the work, go on a sabbatical. You're going through a lot. You know, for me, they said, you're the uh, goose at the head of the pack, just getting smashed with the wind. Mm. Take a turn back and to the back, yeah, fly yeah. to the back. Let someone else lead this flying bee. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's what I've been considering. Mm -hmm. So you're, you are then aptly, it's your next book. You're in the season now of discerning what is next. That's right. Well, brother, that's wise words of listening to your body. And I wish you all the grace and peace as you navigate what is, that's, that's hard because community means relationships, but at the totally. same time, you juxtapose that to the cost and traumas that you've incurred on your body. Absolutely. drawn so much wisdom from your experience uh, ministering and, and beyond into your book here. And I want to now just engage with these pieces because I think contemporary Christianity, and by that I mean predominantly white church traditions, there is a theme, and I have experienced it every time I go to guest preach, especially during the past two, three, four years, um, or, or perhaps since Trump. Every time I'm coming through and we have conversations around the possibilities of taking a stand on something, could be anything, but usually if it's a stand on some matter of justice like racism or anti-racism, there is always a posture in return of, whoa, whoa, slow down, let's hear everybody out. As if there's some type of virtue in Christianity to sit your ass on the fence. Like, I, totally. I don't see that verse. Uh, in fact, we are called to something distinctly different. But ass sitting on the fence seems to be a virtue in these churches. What's going on? I think we are uncomfortable making political stands. And I think that one of the reasons we are is, one, when Christians have taken political stands, they've sided with the oppressor. Mm -hmm. So some people have a distaste for that in their mouth. They don't want to be political. And so they equate left and right. Um, they don't know how to take a political stand because what they've seen is embarrassing. They're afraid they're going to sound like Jerry Falwell, you know, a Jerry Falwell Jr. or a Franklin Graham or one of these guys. Mm, um, okay. And so they don't say anything. But I'm here to say that churches who don't want to take a stand who value purple congregations who think they're doing the kingdom of God because the diversity they hold is a political diversity mm. and not an actual bodily mm. diversity. Mm -hmm. They're missing a point here. That kind of unity falls in the back of the oppressed. Oh, you know, if at your communion table, you have people who think it's okay for police to kill black people, yeah. that it's okay to, to, to take away the rights of women and of LGBTQIA yeah, people yeah. and that it's okay to deport immigrants. Yes. 
You can't have not just people that think it's wrong to kill black people, that think it's wrong to take away the rights of women and sexual minorities, that think it's wrong to deport immigrants, not just different ideas, but rather black people, queer people, women, immigrants, disabled people. We're talking about people's bodies. Mm. We're talking about their very humanity. Politics isn't abstract isn't abstract to minorities. It is lived. It is personal. We feel it in our bodies. And what we're demanding and what we're asking is just to see our humanity. We are people. We have pain that we've experienced and we, and, and we want to be in your churches. And if you insist on reducing our lived experience to an idea, to critical race theory, to wokeism, to whatever you want to say, yes then you're missing the point. Politics isn't abstract, you know? Um, and I, 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 write, I found this out when Trump instituted the Muslim ban and all of a sudden people that looked like me weren't allowed in the country just because they looked like me. Uh-huh. And then I realized I was going to administer communion to our congregation. And I realized at a love feast and I realized, oh, I need Jesus to save me from this oppression now. There is no both sides. There is no third yes. way. yes. Yes. The, the, the way to follow God right now is to side with the oppressed. And there has been a lot of dialogue about why that's problematic. But to me, the kind of, the kind of weight that falls on the shoulders of minorities in churches that don't want to advocate for them and give them their dignity is really tremendous. And it is death dealing too. Death dealing. Absolutely. It's costly. It, it affects our bodies. Yes. And if you are not on the margins or incurring that systemic oppression, systemic being the results of the political decision-making process, totally. then you don't know. In fact, it looks like every other day. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the dialogue piece, let's take a step back because I... I, I what your voice again? It was it was hot, man. You're coming through with your faux diversity. There is this sense that if we can just hold respectable dialogue around controversial issues, which in many <laughs> for some things they're not controversial, but uh, they're put on this uh, uh, polarized spectrum. That the dialogue in itself, if you can merely hold the dialogue, you can feign then this faux diversity. Um, totally. Come, totally. Back to, come back to this diversity piece, because when w- we talk about, BIPOC folks talk about diversity, we, we think of diversity across all the different spectrums of ability, of, of uh, neurodiversity, of ethnicities, and so forth. And there's a is there a different diversity that's being celebrated within predominantly white communities? Say that one more time. Well, is there a different kind of when when white congregations we'll use we'll drill it down to churches use the, the terms diversity? Are they celebrating then the sense of this pretend diversity of oh we can hold diverse political opinions in the same place and hold that as a value? Diversity furthers white supremacy when it doesn't increase um, the, the, the understanding of the perspectives of the minorities that make them diversity. Political diversity results in the status quo. Oh, yeah. Every Bipartisanship time. results in the status quo. Mm. 
you know, um, it takes in some ways extreme partisanship for reform to happen, um, mm. for change to happen. And yes. in order yes. to, in order to accomplish progress, we really need to take the posture of elevating minority voices in our churches. You know, we, we, the, 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 we're talking about their very dignity, you know, when you look at the incarceration rates for Latino and black men that are uh, disproportionately higher than their white counterparts, when you look at um, police killings that are disproportionately higher for black men than they are for their white counterparts, when you look at the teen suicide rate of LGBTQIA people, you're talking about people's very life. Pastors don't want to take a stand because they're afraid of losing members, mm -hmm. but I'm talking about mm -hmm. losing lives. Yeah, money. You know, mm -hmm. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 describes the body of Christ um, as made up of many parts. And Paul says, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members, we treat with greater respect. The oppressed mm -hmm. are the ones who, are seem, who seem weaker, mm -hmm. who seem less honorable, mm -hmm. and who seem less respectable. Paul says, lift them up. And then, so that there is no dissension in the body. God has so arranged the body, given the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. When we elevate voices of color, when we listen to the oppressed, we honor everyone. When we suffer with the least of these, we suffer. When, when, at least, when one of the least of these suffers, we all suffer with them. That's the kind of Christian unity that the church should be known for. Yes. We unite around the oppressed. Uh -huh. We don't unite in spite of their oppression. Amen. We have the opposite problem in churches. I, I won't just uh, uh, paint a wide brush of white white churches. Uh, you you had shared earlier what as I was saying. Oh, it's uncomfortable to make a stand because folks, uh, it, it, congregations in their mind might be thinking of the Falwells or so forth like that. But the opposite uh, or the other end of the spectrum is folks want to be like the Falwells. They want to be uh, behind what they the Jesus and John Wayne ideas of retaining totally. power. The bipartisanship leading to status quo is uh, exercise into retaining and preserving institutional power for both sides, and that's totally. not helping the marginalized folks. And so we're we're generating this notion that if you don't have the marginalized in your community, then you create a false narrative. Is my sense here? You know, fill in the blanks for me now. You you create a false narrative around the fact you are in fact marginalized. You're you're being politically marginalized. We're being marginalized because look at Roe versus Wade is still the law of the land. Not anymore. And so you start to generate this engine, however, unto power versus unto centering or liberating those of the margins. Totally, totally, totally. One of the aspects that just frustrates me is, is an unwillingness to pick a side. Mm -hmm. And it's not a virtue for staying and finding middle ground as if 
Christians are somehow somehow the referees of <laughs> of dialogue. Uh, do you chalk that up to biblical illiterism? Uh, biblical illiterism. Do you chalk that up to a problem of having the wrong picture of who Jesus is? Well, Jesus was no stranger to controversy. He had no issue um, being polarizing. Jesus was not concerned with politeness. Jesus had a message. He was clear about it. And he clearly took a side with the oppressed. Mm-hmm. He said, if you cause any of the le- any of these little ones to stumble, it's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be thrown into the Sea of Galilee than the judgment that awaits you. He said, if you walk into a town and they reject your message, dust your heels, it'll be better, better for Sodom and Gomorrah mm-hmm. on Judgment Day than it will be for that mm-hmm. town. Jesus had a strong polemic against people that opposed him and his way. He invited everybody in the parable of the banquet to the table. And when the wealthy, when the married, when the people with the field and the ox were too busy to come, he found the destitute and they came. Jesus came to lower val- to lower hills and to raise valleys, to free the oppressed, to free the captives. This is exactly what the gospel is. And it takes a lot of work to undo that. And so I do think it is biblically illiterate. And I do think it is missing the point of who Jesus is when we try to find some mm-hmm. middle road, third way, I don't even know what we're saying anymore. You know, there was a time when white, when uh, the third way politics was defined as what Martin Luther King was doing, right? You have a nonviolent resistance, which is contrary to violent resistance. But these days, the movement of Black Lives Matter, the movement that people call critical race theory, the movement that people call woke, that is modeled after the nonviolent resistance Mm -hmm. of Martin Luther Mm -hmm. King. But instead of being seen as a third way, it is seen as a poll, a leftist progressive poll. And then we have this fascist poll and we're supposed to find a third way between them. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, so, and, and then Martin Luther King is still used to sanitize he, he is sanitized mm. and he's used to perpetuate the status quo you know he said that the riot is the voice of the unheard and people speak about um riots in a way that says like martin luther king wasn't for them or something like yeah, that yeah, yeah, you know like yeah. there's this sanitation that ha- sanitization that happens to him that undoes any usefulness that the yes. third way idea would have nowadays the third way just means a moderate path nowadays mm. it means not being able to tell a member in your congregation whether you're affirming or not because oh, you got to take him out to coffee you oh, know geez <laughs> you gotta you gotta make sure that they're uh you know, are you affirming? Can I be blessed here in marriage and ministry and membership? Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, Come out, have a cup of coffee gross. with me. No, just answer the damn question. Yes. Black it's not hard. Yeah. State it. Be clear. These things are by design. Like the vilification of critical race theory by design. The 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 push onto uh, ab- abortion. Um, and canceling abortion by design, uh, the sanitization of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King by design. Totally. This is always totally. whiteness by design. I like this third way supremacy. piece. Uh, I like this third way of of um, we we have 
made the fence the third way. We have made for many uh, middle-of-the-road Christians who don't do much of anything. Uh, there's been a rewriting of the polls. I like that. I like that. A rewriting of where, what the polls are. And then the middle ground, the third way, has become just uh, hold the status quo intention. Maybe intention, but at, at very most, uh, please hold the status quo uh, what's driving that? Like, do you think that is a conscious attempt to retain privilege within predominantly white denominations and churches? Motives are hard to judge. Mm. They're hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um, my viewpoint is we have a lot of hesitation around change. We have a lot of importance about institutionalism. People don't want things to change. They just, I, I think in general, they just don't want their life to change. Mm-hmm. They think that if we let all these new ideas in, the gospel will be threatened, Jesus will be threatened, the gospels will be threatened. And so their resistance to new ideas, that could be rooted in some of their power. I think ultimately it is, but the kind of evil you have to be to be conscious that your ideas are merely there to uphold your power and your privilege and your white supremacy. I don't assume most people are like that. I think they're misguided and they need help along the way, you know, but um if you're not willing to listen to the lived experiences of people of color and to other racial minorities, then you miss the point, you know, um, you're missing an opportunity to learn. Would it be accurate to, as we reorient the sense of what the third way is, and, and we don't need to reinvent this, as you stated plainly, there is a, a recapturing, a reclamation perhaps of sorts of the work that black and brown bodies have already done like it's already out there, we have to reclaim it or bring it back into the forefront. Would it be good to switch the metaphor of the sense of the third way isn't isn't us sitting on the fence, rather it is an active pursuit. The third way is the active pursuit of the Jesus who liberates. It would be wonderful if that were the case. I just think that we should follow the Jesus who liberates and let go of that term, which is not very helpful. I don't which think term? we should be part the third way specifically, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like let's follow the liberating God, the redeeming God and see where God takes us. Let's Mm -hmm. follow what it looks like to side with the oppressed and see how that helps us engage politically, locally, at a state level, nationally, whatever country we're in. Um, At times it'll feel like we're being partisan, but if you think that Jesus taking a side means that you're supposed to just be a Democrat in the U S you miss the point Mm -hmm. because the Democrats are not exemplars of moral leadership. No. They're, they're, they're inept on their own, and, and, and they showed their hypocrisy. And I write about this when they investigated the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, but they did not investigate the allegations against Joe Biden. Um, and they just showed that they're hypocritical, that they're interested in political power, and that they're not interested in moral leadership. And so even if I happen to vote Democrat, actually every election twice a year, every year since I was for, for the 18 years that I've been eligible to vote, even though I've done that, I feel no allegiance to a political party and I have no sense of partisanship. Rather than say third way, I say find the God who oppresses, uh, follow the God who, who, of the oppressed. And then more than that, allow your prophetic imagination to stretch beyond the political constraints of this economy, you know, this political economy. Imagine a prophetic imagination. What would it look like to have a world without violence, a world with peace, a world without police? Can we imagine new ways to... Um, Keep our neighborhoods safe. Can we imagine new ways to consume energy so that we aren't um, 
destroying our planet? You know, what are the things that we can do that are, that are beyond the political constraints mm-hmm. that help us imagine? That's what Christians mm-hmm. should be doing while also engaging as practically as we can in politics. So there is an engagement of politics here, and I appreciate how you're drawing, you're just stating in your book this this pursuit like don't shy away from the notion of divorcing politics and Jesus uh, I I think that there is a power to the notion that the, the Jesus way produces a picture or vision in fact of a better way of being but then it is hard to get into that place if your picture of Jesus at the get-go is distorted. Like, totally, if you have totally. a white Jesus, you're not going to... Like, what is the catalyst then for so many congregations? And, and they showed their cards, they always are showing their cards when Christian nationalism starts to emerge, anti-vaccine uh, uh, pushes start to emerge. Like, what is the catalyst of formation for these congregations? Do they have hope? Is there? Totally. I mean, yes. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that a distorted version of Jesus doesn't help us understand um, it, it gets us off on the wrong foot, right? And so we have to figure out how do we form an image of God and an image of Jesus that helps us side with the oppressed? What does that look like? And I think ultimately a very plain reading of the Bible helps us, a plain understanding of what Jesus came to do. I would just start with the gospel of Luke and see what Jesus is saying in that gospel and try to hold on as, clo- as tight as you can to the apparent message of the gospel, which is to uh, liberate the oppressed. Set the captives free. That's right. This distorted Jesus is the one that produces an understanding of a Jesus who wasn't political? Totally, a Jesus that didn't take a side. And and it produced this, this, this uh, ethic within congregations uh, I take the road of, and and like I don't have enough spoons for this, <laughs> probably why. So I don't know if it's the right road, but what road do you take? So that's the question. My road when I engage in communities, churches, thought leaders who are embodying the picture of white Jesus, I, I just ignore you. Like, I won't have a conversation or diet. Like, that's not for me. Like, I think it's too dust far Dust your gone. heels, right? Yeah. Oh, dust my heels. Oh, where have I heard that before? What is your approach to... Like, there's there's a sense of, uh, of, and this is distorted as well, of Christian peacemaking is trying to find that middle ground again. Um, at what point, or can you even just say, no, dust, dust my shoes? Uh, Y'all just go keep doing what you do, and I go to totally ignore you. Well, I mean, I think that there's such a big difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Making peace is a lot different than keeping peace. Mm. Um, we cannot make peace with we cannot make peace with war. We cannot make peace with violence. We cannot uh, love hatred. We cannot live with death. So Christians need to understand that we're, we're advocating and advancing a gospel of love, of hope, of faith. We're advo- advancing a gospel of, uh, of peace and love and justice. These are the things that we need to do. And so I keep listening to the minorities among us and elevating their voices as high as we can. And I don't worry about the people that 
um, aren't quite there yet. They can get individual conversations, individual discipleship, but I'm certainly not going to censure them in our dialogue. Who's going to be censured is who has been decentered. Is that a Johnny Rashid special? Peacemaking does not equal peacekeeping? I don't know if it is, but I've said it. Yes. Put it on a sweater. That's a good one. <laughs> it is a good one. Let's trail off then with the final question here. Your book produces a pathway for those to engage with the biblical Jesus, to use that term, but of course it's everybody's interpretation of Jesus, but you bring forward the marginalized brown Jesus who lived in Palestine, who Mm -hmm. was under Roman occupation in the process of being colonized. Uh, You bring forth the possibilities of... uh, reclaiming the old ways in many, in many senses. Where does the hope lie in terms of reclaiming the vision for better for marginalized people? Where's that hope and what does it look like in the, in the pathway? Give us a glimpse when it comes to returning to a story of liberation. Well, let's keep remembering the story of the Exodus. Let's keep remembering our communion. Let's keep remembering when God has been faithful. And let's remember that God is transcendent above the pain, the suffering, and the despair of this world. And let us use the promise of salvation to inform our imminent politics today. Jesus has saved the world, and Jesus is present in the world. Mm. Jesus is transcendent and imminent. And so, as we imagine a new way to be, a new way to follow, a new way to imagine the whole world. Engage as practically as you can, be as focused as you can, as local as you can, and try to do this work specifically. Don't try, don't be overwhelmed by all the information around you. Don't be overwhelmed by trying to figure everything out. Listen to experts, listen to um, trusted people around you. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. You know, I, in Philadelphia, I focus on affordable housing. Um, policy. And so I devote myself to that specific work. Mm, mm-hmm. And then I listen to others when it comes to other matters as well. Um, that's so that's nice. one practical thing you can do, mm-hmm. but don't ever get constrained by our political choices here, even if you practically participate in them. So yes, vote, but also don't ever think that the options that we have politically are all we have. There's so much more and God can keep expanding our political imagination and can keep disciplining us to have hope, can keep disciplining us, disciplining us to cultivate our anger too. Let's do both. Mm. Do you have a a practice perhaps uh, or a rhythm to embody the imagination of, it's a constant imagination like a constant reimagination of what is now for what can be in God's new creation. Rhythms or ideas to cultivate that? I would say one thing you can do is keep imagining. On one hand, just don't ever think of the world around you as unchangeable. Imagine Mm. a world where we don't use fossil fuels. Imagine a world where we don't have guns. Imagine the Mm. world where police aren't... Mm -hmm killing us to protect us. And then keep cultivating your imagination. Keep cultivating your counterconsciousness. Wonder what your foregone conclusions are. Keep disciplining yourself to do that. So read the Bible, but also read poetry, read fiction, listen to children, 
Pay attention to who is imagining. Don't tamp down imagination. Don't tamp mm. down hope. Stay idealistic. Hold on to your beliefs. Um, hold on to your ideals. Don't let grown-ups take them away from you. Mm. Believe in what feels impossible. Because what's impossible with mortals is possible with God. If you want to keep up with me, go to johnnyrashid.com. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at johnnyrashid. You can follow Food Pasture on Instagram to see what I'm cooking. Um, yeah, and then pay attention. I have a few articles that have just come out. Um, one on Matthew 18, violence and power, loosing and binding. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, how it's been used to abuse people. Go to earthandalter.com. You can find that. And then I have another one coming out in the Leader Magazine of the Mennonite publication as well. So... You can follow all those updates at johnnyrashid.com or on my Twitter or Instagram.